If you know Portland, you know we're in the midst of a craft brewing craze. Our city boasts over 60 breweries, more than any city in the world. We also lead the U.S. in craft beer sales, with nearly half of beer purchases in PDX being craft beer. And that's earned us a nickname, Beervana. But that's not just beer. The numbers suggest that cider might be Oregon's next brewing trend. Welcome to Biz 503, where today's topic is craft beverages. We're talking to experts about Oregon's brewing boom and what's making our beverage scene thrive. I'm Rebecca Webb, founder of Portland Radio Project, co-hosting today with Cindy Tortorisi, business consultant, executive coach, and master connector at The Link. We have a terrific panel joining us in the studio to introduce us to the craft brewing industry. Matt Bergfield, head brewer at Edgefield Brewery, and Brian Yeager, craft beverage writer and author of Red, White, and Brew, are here with us today. Thank you guys for being here. Thanks. Great to be here. Thanks so for having how, us. We love having you. So tell us about what the craft beer phenomenon is. When did it start? What's, give us a history lesson. Well, it it's, uh, depends on how far back you want to go. Uh, you could go all the <laughs> way back to Prohibition. It might be a reasonably good place to start. This is only a one-hour show. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, so we'll, then we'll skip forward about, what, 50 years? Let's start with your bosses, yeah. Yeah, well, let's start with Mike and Brian McMiniman uh, and the Brew Pub Bill. That was passed back in July of 1985. So a little while ago, um, but still very early for craft beer nationally. This was a bill that basically allowed beer to be sold on premise where it was made, which at that point in time was very unusual. Everything that people were drinking was the uh, factory retro brands, as we would kind of refer to them today, you know, Schlitz or uh, Blitz. or There wasn't a lot of local beer at all. And so that was sort of where things kicked off here in Portland. That also had uh, some implications for other companies uh, in town, and there were people before that and right around that time, and you think Henry Weinhardt, you think the Widmer brothers as well, all in the same uh, conversation for sure. So it started really about 30 years ago. Let's ask what craft beer is, though. How is it distinguished literally from the run-of-the-mill beer? There are shifting definitions, but the, uh, the Brewers Association generally defines it by barrelage produced, and bar- a barrel is a unit of measurement used in brewing that's about 31 gallons. So uh, based on barrelage right now, I think it's defined by Sam Adams, uh, Boston Brewing Company, and they're making about 6 million barrels a year. They're, they're making almost half of that, actually. It is defined as being anyone who produces up to 6 million barrels. That is written with the notion that down the road, they will be producing up to 6 million. So, so it's strictly a matter of how much you produce. Is that the only distinguishing factor? That's one of the three tiers that the Brewers Association bases it on. Uh, and that 6 million mark sounds like a lot, and it is a lot. But in the context of the the big, big boys, the, the Budweiser's, Miller's, Coors, who are producing tens of millions, uh, sometimes more than that, uh, hundreds of millions, then it still gets to keep that sort of micro you know, word that we, we like to use. But as, as Matt was saying, that's sort of one of the three platforms of what defines craft beer, the other two being independently owned and using traditional ingredients. So they sort of are basically pointing to adjuncts like corn, corn sugars, rice, things that can be used to cheaply brew, get, get fermentable sugars in there to cheapen the product. When you said that there was a bill in 1985, was that national or was that a state? A that was state Oregon. That, that was, was Oregon. just Oregon here, yeah. And which is that was sort of the one of the beginning moments of establishing Birvana, as you said. Uh, that was the kickoff uh, of 
McMemmons, the company, and our first brew pub, which was in was the Hillsdale Brewery. And our first brews were very primitive by today's standards and even by the, the standards of the bigger companies that existed at the time. But that was mostly because of a dearth of equipment available. But we started off brewing extract batches, which are not very, I guess, they, they probably wouldn't fit the definition of craft today. Uh, considering that we would, we would now use whole, uh, we'd use all grain, malt, um, and try to shy away from things like that, which would be considered shortcuts now, but that's what we had. Mm. Brian, you've written in one of your books, um, you can remind me of which one, that if you visited a, a brew pub a week for a year, you still wouldn't get to all of the ones in Portland. Did I get that right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Here in Portland, we have over 60 breweries, most of them are the brew pub model where the beer is brewed and primarily served on premise. So, yeah, if you think about that, if you went to one a week, you'd still only hit wow. five, six <laughs> of, of all the breweries that we have to enjoy. So curious. So if there are 60 breweries, how many different options are there at each brewery usually? I mean, That's really the best part. We have some breweries that maybe specialize in a certain style of brewing, be it Belgian beers, Pacific Northwest, hoppy ales, uh, German-style breweries are on the rise. But I think, on the whole, most of the breweries will brew a very wide range of beer styles to please a Hmm. wide range of beer drinkers. Talk about where the hops come from, if you will. I know, I believe that you had some in your backyard, but don't they come from all (laughs) over the world? (laughs) Uh, most of the brewers are not using the few uh, vines of nugget hops that I have growing in my backyard. <laughs> that that would be a very bad for our industry if everyone relied on <laughs> on my production. But uh, yeah, nationally, ninety I want to say percent of the American hops are brewed in, are grown in the uh, Pacific Northwest. Most of that comes from Washington's Yakima Valley, but a very healthy amount comes from our Willamette Valley. I'm embarrassed to say that I didn't know hops was a crop. Crop, actually, it's an awesome crop. <laughs> <laughs> hey, with so many of these little uh, brew pubs, though, why don't they drive each other out of business? Well, That's it, yeah. When you get it. down to going back to your question about what craft beer is, we talked. About about the strict definitions. And I think that that might be a little bit out of the spirit of craft uh, in general, be it craft cider or craft distilling or craft brewing specifically, because it's about collaboration, experimentation, and innovation in addition to those independently owned ingredients uh, parameters. So what goes hand in hand with that is because it's sort of always been a David versus Goliath struggle uh, since the inception of the independently owned uh, breweries, the Brew Pub Act, the, the smaller breweries have kind of banded together to help each other out in certain ways, be it collaborating on recipes, be it sharing knowledge, sharing equipment. Um, so nowadays, there's still a very much a strong spirit of camaraderie between uh, between brewers and, and companies uh, in the industry. So they don't drive each other out of competition or out of uh, business because they're not trying to. And beyond that, I'm going to say the rise of craft beer and craft beverages on the whole absolutely uh, is mirrored in our affinity for artisan foods, locally sourced foods. People always want new flavors, new experiences, and the more breweries we have, and of course the the wider range of beers that they produce, people are always able to find something new and tasty. It would be terrible if we only had three beers to choose from. If we only had you know Folgers and uh, uh, Sanka to choose from, people have graduated beyond that, and so there's thank always God. new. Exactly, <laughs> thank God, right? And it just so happens that when you look at Portland in particular, I think we're highest in all those measurements of most and per capita and largest, you know, uh, 
support of craft because that's what people here crave all the time. It's not a fleeting thing that we dabble in. It's how we live, eat, and drink all the time. We're just about to get to a cider guy who loves beer. But before we do, can you just talk about the different kinds? Because I never understand these. IPA, pale ale, XPA, stout inversion. You know, <laughs> do, do a quick beer 101 for yeah. dummies, would you? <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, let, Rebecca. Yeah, I want you to Sure, sure. That. Well, a lot of those styles that you named, the, the PA, the, all these letters and combinations of, of letters and, uh, and acronyms, these are American brewing is very much based in British brewing uh, traditions and Belgian brewing traditions. But the IPA, the India Pale Ale, there's some mythologized origins about that. But the, that uh, category now, because it's not just one style of beer anymore, IPA has become, has spawned a myriad of spinoffs. So this is maybe going right beyond 101 and into 201. Okay. <laughs> we'll <laughs> but, try and stay with you, Matt. Yeah. Right now in craft brewing, the IPA has become a lot of uh, a, mar- a marketing term for uh, pretty much anything. You have India Session Ales, which are lower gravity, but also kind of hoppy. You have extra pale ales, which are like pale ales, but not quite IPAs. You have double IPAs, (laughs) which are a little bit stronger than IPAs, but they're not quite as strong as triple IPAs, but maybe they're about the same as imperial IPAs. So you could talk about IPA forever. But basically, when you're talking about American craft brewing, you are talking about these basic Belgian and British styles with some creative twists, and especially in this, the Pacific Northwest, uh, usually a little more hopping because we have it down the street and we have great ingredients to use uh, down the street figuratively, obviously. So I need a little bit of help here because I'm a Milwaukee, Wisconsin girl the, with Schlitz, the beer that made Milwaukee famous, of course. And we always knew that Coors was a 3-2 beer, right? So <laughs> talk to us a little bit about the alcohol content of these different beers. Mm-hmm. Uh, alcohol content on craft beer, I think uh, for us inside the industry, we're used to seeing 5%, 6%, 7%, which is doubling, tripling, sometimes quadrupling that 3-2 figure. But it is considered pretty high. I mean, it's not as high as a glass of wine, but you can have two IPAs and it'll be just about in that same ballpark. The ABV is something that I think is more of a side product of trying to achieve flavor by using more malt than, as Brian was talking uh, about earlier, rice, corn. These have sugar in them that can be used to raise uh, the sugar content of the beer, which will affect the alcohol content later, but they're also used to lighten the body. Whereas if using all malt, it's going to have the alcohol, the ABV, and it's going to be full body and have a lot of good flavor, which is really what we're going for. It is important to note, other than the fact that, thank God, we don't live in, in Utah or Colorado or the states that still have 3-2 laws, but that is 3.2 <laughs> by weight, not by volume. So it's a little closer to 4% by volume, uh, but still a lot of times, certainly not all the time, the higher the ABV, the more flavor you could ABV? squeeze into the alcohol by volume. Sorry, oh, okay. The the more flavorful that beer might be. And do you guys like cider at all yourselves? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Love it. Yeah, we have yeah. with us uh, the director of operations from Reverend Nat's Hard Cider, the product of Portland's own cider evangelist. That would be Reverend Nat, and his operations director is Steve Panos. Welcome, Steve. Hi, everybody. How come you're such a beer fan if you're in the cider business? Um, you know, beer is my first love. <laughs> Spent about 10 years making it um, before moving on to Reverend So there's a lot of del- delicious beverages out there. You have more of them represented with the folks coming up later. Um, so it's just, just another flavor. And since we're on the subject of alcohol volume, talk about cider. Is it also variable there? It's variable, but slightly less variable. You know, to some extent, depending on the product we're making, we are 
limited a little bit by how much sugar is in the apple, unless we want to start playing around with those, by playing around with how much sugar there is by adding additional sugar to the mix. But um, you also have tax implications with cider, which, well, there's been some changes as of today, but uh, traditionally you had to stay below 7% ABV. Otherwise, you began getting taxes of wine, which changed things up. So, yeah, a lot of variation. So to be clear, a glass of wine generally has between, what, 11 and 14% ABV? Yeah, roughly. Give or take, yep. And so cider is under 7. I'd say 75% is going to be under 7, and then you have, you know, the remaining can it be anywhere from 7 to 14, 16, and depending on what games you're playing? is between 3 and 7? Beer can go much higher than 7%. Oh. Uh, you, without augmenting the, the sugar content or your ice distilling, which is uh, makes it questionable as to whether it's actually beer anymore, but some companies have done it to achieve that uh, alcohol by volume upper limit. But I would say that a fair range would be 2% to 15%. The, the variability in style is that wide. So sugar equals alcohol content. Sugar gets fermented by yeast, which uh, and the main byproduct of fermentation in this case uh, is, al- well, the two by- byproducts are alcohol and CO2, which is giving us that carbonation or helping okay. get us there. Well, we know now where the best place to get your brew on is. That's PDX, right? Well, we're going to look at sister industries like cider and uh, hear more about beer, of course, and get an inside peek at what makes these industries tick when we come back after a short break. Welcome back to Biz 503 on PRP. I'm Rebecca Webb, founder of Portland Radio Project. And I'm Cindy Tortorici of The Link. We're talking today about craft brewing industry and how Oregon, and in particular Portland, is leading the charge. We established in our last segment that the beer industry is thriving. Now we're going to turn to this question. Does the rising tide of craft beer float all boats? Joining us now in the studio, Cider Guys. You've already met Steve Panos, Director of Operations for Reverend Nat's Hard Cider, and Abram Goldman Armstrong, owner of Cider Riot with an exclamation point. He's also the managing director of Northwest Brewing News. Welcome. Glad to have you here, Abram. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Hey, what is cider? And is it always made with apples? So cider is uh, the fermented juice of the apple. There's kind of this uh, hangover from prohibition that we have on in this country uh, of calling uh, unfermented apple juice cider. And that's actually was a marketing mm-hmm. ploy by cider makers during prohibition, just like the uh, brewers were having to produce this near beer. Uh, <laughs> they were making uh, basically you know, what what we call apple juice or, or sweet cider uh, and uh, trying to market that as, as cider. So then they had to tack on this hard cider. But anywhere else in the world you go, you'll find it. Cider just means alcoholic apple juice. So you basically take the apples, crush them, and ferment them. Okay, Abram, I'm going to stay with you. So you do this in your garage. Yeah. So um, basically I've been making uh, cider at home and home brewing for 20 years. And uh, I actually saw Reverend Nat's place when he was located in his basement and said, wow, you got this licensed. I can do that. All right. So 2013, converted my garage over into a fully licensed and bonded winery and uh, got all my Department of Ag inspections and all that and uh, got up and running. So And it all started in Prohibition, huh? Well, uh, cider actually started <laughs> long, long before that. But we, as, as uh, somebody mentioned, I think uh, we don't have time to go into yeah. uh, where the apples came from in Kazakhstan and nom- nomadic <laughs> people bringing them with them and things like that. So. And jolly old England, to be sure. <laughs> hey, Steve, let me ask you. What do you think is making cider, what is the attraction that's making cider emerge right now as this hot 
uh, commodity. To some extent, I think it's following the same cycle as craft beer did. You know, we had the benefit of Angry Orchard Cider coming out, eh, becoming very popular about five, six years ago, um, reintroducing people to the cider um, from the ones that were available, and now you're getting that draw towards more local um, cideries again, just like you are more local breweries. And we're kind of riding that wave along with, you know, the desire for, you know, gluten-free products among the population, along with just that general desire to try new flavors that you're seeing um in the marketplace. So, you know, the three all kind of working together. So, Steve, talk a little bit about your roots in the whole cider industry. You started in, in Vermont, I understand. Well, my roots in the cider industry uh, date back about a year to when Reverend Nett hired me. But uh, there's a lot of crossover between most fermented beverages, uh, and that includes, you know, beer to cider. And so, to some extent, it's just a different sugar that you can work with and get different flavors out of. Um, our cidery uses almost exclusively beer yeasts um, for majority of our fermentations. Most of the finishing processes are fairly similar to beer. So, you know, my, my background goes is mostly beer, but the crossover is pretty easy. Okay, just give us a quick definition then, staying with that idea of f- fermenting versus brewing process. Well, the brewing process usually relates to the hot side kind of activities that a brewer does um, around the kettle, around the mash tun, um, everything that involves hot water and grains. Fermentation takes place you know, in every ferment, in every, almost every kind of alcohol at a certain phase where you're just turning sugars, letting the yeast turn sugars into booze. So, you know, brewing kind of, ex- kind of exclusive to beer. Okay, I'm getting very geeky now. So are beer and cider barreled like wine is? Both can be. Um, you know, the majority of the production that we drink um, in this country right now is not barreled, but I believe everyone here that makes the product makes a product has stuff aging in barrels tucked away. Um, it just gives a lot of different variations to what you can do. I guess I'm thinking of craft brewing specifically. Yeah. So not everyone barrels it. No, most of it come, most of it's processed in stainless, but um, a lot of products can age well in mm, barrels. That's an interesting thing to ask someone if if the beer is actually barreled or stainless, yeah. Generally, people are right up front with that. Uh, Brewers want to be advertising the fact that they're barrel aging their products because they take a little more time. They usually have very unique flavors. Same with cider. And it's something that the customer generally is looking for. Barrel aged beers are very hot in the in the scene right now, and people are uh, excited to go and try them. It's It goes along, it goes hand in hand with the discussion, the, the theme of the discussion we've been having so far that People are looking for new flavors all the time. It, it comes from this portfolio drinker uh, sort of mentality that customers have where instead of being loyal to, say, um, one brand, you think of your grandpa, he always drank his one kind of beer, and that was that. Uh, people now are going to go to the grocery store, and in one trip they might bring back three six-packs, a bomber of cider, and maybe even a bottle of wine just uh, just to mix things up. So people are always looking for new flavors, and I think that's where barrel aging has come in heavily. I do also want to uh, note that as a callback to the discussion earlier about uh, beer being measured in barrels, that is really a unit of measurement, 31 gallons, or as people could think of it, two standard kegs. Uh, not to say that if you are a brewery that produces a million barrels of beer a year, any of it has seen the inside of an actual oak barrel. 
question coming over the talk board. The Ruby Ale is Oregon's best fruit beer, this listener contends. How much raspberry goes into each batch, and why is it so quaffable? <laughs> well, thanks. Uh, thanks for the question. Yeah, Ruby is a, an amazingly important beer for McMenamins as a company. Uh, it is a beer that was spawned from some experimentation with brewing with fruit that did come from the Belgian style of using fruits in lambics. Conrad Santos was one of our earliest brewers, and he was that was sort of his philosophy behind the beer. So the original fruit beer that we brewed had some Marionberry and some Blackberry in it, and then eventually, after a few different attempts at certain styles, uh, cherry beers and uh, a beer with Mars bars that isn't fruit but made us go back to fruit, mm. uh, we found the, we found the ruby. <laughs> Chocolate and fruit didn't work. They, they well, they you'd think that they would, but uh, maybe candy bars weren't the best way to go. But ruby is uh, is our ale that we brew with raspberries. And we source our raspberries locally. They're from Salem, uh, in Oregon Fruit Products, the name of the company. And we, depending on where you go, and I only say that because we have 26 breweries. One of them is a 25-barrel brewery. One of them is a 10-barrel brewery. And the rest of them are six-barrel breweries. So differing sizes mm. of production per batch. Uh, it'll depend on how much fruit is in there. But at the Edgefield Brewery, we use about uh, 250 pounds of raspberry puree per batch. And that's in about... A thousand gallon or twelve hundred gallon batch, so significant. We're not skimping. It's not just enough to color it. You can taste it in there too. So, from our talk board, we do have a question, and I am curious about this as well. What are German beers? German beers are. I'll, I'll take this one. Uh, German beers are tra- just traditional styles. So I mentioned uh, English and Belgian styles, but I was remiss in not mentioning German styles because the Germans have quite a few sort of legacy styles. I, when I think of German beer, I would think of Kolsch. I would think of Hefeweizen. Those two stand out uh, really strongly to me. I mean, think of Widmer Brothers Hefeweizen as uh, one of the staple beers of Portland for a long, long time, right up next to Ruby and uh, and Mirror Pond from Deschutes. You know, that's not Portland, but it's they're, they're right up there with uh, those legacy styles that we have in Oregon. So German beers are generally, uh, this is a big generalization, uh, lighter, uh, crisper, lower alcohol, and they're very affected by the uh, German brewing brewing law called the Reinheitsgebot, which uh, is a mouthful, but it basically prohibits the use of any ingredients in beer except for uh, malted barley. There was an exception made for wheat, yeast, water, and hops. Um, so German beers are known for their rigidity of style because they don't mess around. They don't play around with fruits or uh, experimental uh, adjuncts. They get right down to business and only use those standard ingredients. I'm not sure whether the fact that uh, the woman running our social media and taking questions from the talk board is a German exchange student uh-huh. at Portland State <laughs> University, Rebecca Wittenstein, <laughs> may have influenced why that question got through. Okay, well, we have, can you guys stick around? Because at the very end of the show, we would like to have everybody in for a toast. And uh, so I'm just wondering if you would be up for that. Sounds great. Yeah, I'll take a toast. <laughs> okay, great. Beer and cider abound in Oregon, but there's more to the craft brewing industry than these two beverages. Next, we'll be talking to some folks with a range of products from brandy to sipping vinegars after a short break. Welcome back. I'm Cindy Tortorisi, founder of The Link, co-hosting with Rebecca Webb, founder of Portland Radio Project. 
Today on Biz 503, we're delving into a topic that gets lots of coverage in Oregon and should be around the holidays, I would think. It's a festive topic. It is a festive topic. Craft so, brewing. Yes. So far, we've met some of the people behind the beer and cider surge in Portland. Now we're turning to the folks who nab fewer headlines, but who brew beverages that are gaining some traction. We're welcoming today Erica Deegans, co-founder of Stone Barn Brandy Works, which makes handcraft brandies and spirits from Pacific Northwest fruits and grains. Welcome, Erica. Thank you. Glad to have you here. Tell us what's special about Brandyworks and making beverages with fruits and grains from uh, the Northwest. Well, we do small batch everything and we follow the fruit in the summer. We start with apricots, then we move on to pears and apples, then we do quince. Uh, I should Hmm. add in there In July, we pick uh, green walnuts to make our Nuccino, which we start soaking in our rye whiskey. Um, We're making whiskey year-round, and we're barrel-aging it. You know, we have a 40-gallon still, and we pretty much, that's our batch size. I haven't tried that one yet, but you were at the Food Innovation Center show just a few days ago, and I picked up the Nuccino, which I can't wait to try, and uh, already gave the pear. You had a star crimson pear, which is actually a blend of three pear brandies that we do. We mainly do a Bartlett, but we also work with Kamas pear and a little bit of Anjou. And we make brandy out of it, and then we blend those brandies with juice that we cook from the star crimson pear, which is a redskin pear. And that's what you had. It's kind of a more friendly way to get some brandy. And It was really well-received when I gave it as a gift to a party last week. Thank you. <laughs> Everybody really liked Boy, it. Boy, pear sounds really good. Let me introduce now Ted Pappas, founder and owner of Big Bottom Distilling, a brewer of whiskeys located in Hillsboro. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Okay, so tell us about, um, now you were an Air Force guy, right? Yes. As I recall. And how did you go from being in the Air Force to bottling whiskey? Well, there was, a little, there was something else that got in the way in there. It's called a healthcare career for a long period of time. Um, so I've had an interesting path in my career after college. So we'll just leave it as that. Okay. But what inspired the whiskey? Uh, excessive drinking. <laughs> <laughs> Thus, these shots that are sitting next yeah. to me. I'm the only one that brought a bottle gin. here today. Exactly. <laughs> I'm loving Ted. Loving Ted. Yeah. If you would have given this to me at the beginning, I might have been a little better with my you questions. Didn't, you didn't walk out of the room, any. So <laughs> it's see true. You. It's a good point, Ted. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we're getting good and relaxed. Good. Those are about thimble sized. So, what do you want us to notice about this whiskey? So, uh, this whiskey is actually a gin. So, we'll, we'll start with the basics. Yeah, it's, it's on the it's on the bottom. Yeah, it's okay. amazing. Actually, I think maybe, maybe, so. You also do gin out in Hillsboro. Yeah, I, was thinking, I was thinking maybe someone else was drinking before here. Um, I told you we needed the shot before yeah, we started. Yeah, that's, yeah. So, so I, okay. I remember. Uh, yeah. Anyway, um, no, we do a lot out there. Actually, we're doing uh, whiskey. So primarily, we're, we're concentrating on producing uh, single malt uh, and putting that down into barrels. But we have available a bunch of different other types of whiskeys that we make uh, blended whiskey with, as well as a finished whiskey. And we've been finishing whiskey since uh, 2011 from sourced products that we have found in other places and uh, been doing that quite successfully. And I think actually we were probably one of the first in the state to start doing it and take it really seriously. But we also do gin. We do brandy as well. Um, do you have and a rum. tasting room? We do. We do. All the way out in Hillsboro. So Saturdays, noon to four, very extensive hours. Deb Tabor is with us, maker at Sagency Farms, which creates sipping vinegars and shrubs. That apparently is something colonial, right, Deb? It is. It's essentially 
colonial Gatorade. It is very <laughs> thirst quenching. You mix it with tea or sparkling water or ice water and get that tonic effect. Very good for digestion, good for leg cramps. And then unlike Gatorade, it makes wicked cocktails. So you can put it in gin or a vodka or brandy, whiskey, and make wonderful drinks. Or you can use it just like you would use a regular vinegar as a salad dressing or marinade or dessert vinegar. So no alcohol. No in, alcohol in at all. Sipping vinegar. Tell us about the different kinds uh, that you have. I did a little Christmas shopping at your booth as well at the Food Innovation Center as it happens. We, uh, like Stonebarn, follow the fruit. And it's all Oregon and Washington grown except for our citrus and our ginger, which, of course, we're not quite warm enough to get yet. Are you alluding to global warming? You think we're going to have a, a more of a citrus industry? Uh, Rebecca, I think you're the one that said it was getting warmer. I was going to say, not yet. We're not warm enough to do that yet. So, so talk to us a little bit about the vinegar. Do you suggest, I mean, I heard on a podcast that you were on that you were talking about the health benefits of vinegar as well. We can't technically sell it as a health food, of course, because the FDA doesn't approve vinegar for all of these great things, which is good because if they did, it'd be $50 a gallon and you wouldn't be able to get it in the grocery store. It is has proven to be good for leg cramps. Brigham Young University did a study where they put people on treadmills and worked them until they got cramps and gave the test group water and the and, and the control group pickle juice and their cramps went away in half the time and that's hmm. just standard white vinegar pickle juice so this is just reminding me of my mother somehow i mean it's kind of an old uh, folk it's a very old folk drink. remedy mm-hmm. yep and everybody says well not everybody says but the understanding or the the folk remedy is that it's apple cider vinegar and really any vinegar is good for you because what you're doing is balancing your ph so on the you know st- Staying with the sort of flow of the health uh, angle here, we have Jean-Pierre Parent. Is that correct, Jean-Pierre? Great. Founder of Soma Evolutionary Refreshment, a unique twist on kombucha production. Now, what is uh, so special about your kombucha? Oh, my favorite subject. Thanks for asking. (laughs) So we figured out a way to brew for several months without making alcohol or vinegar. So it's not only the most delicious kombucha, but it's also by far the healthiest. Millions of times more naturally occurring probiotics than any other kombucha. Most kombucha companies are afraid of making alcohol, so they do a quick, weak fermentation, artificially carbonate, stick it in the fridge. It doesn't have time to develop all the nutrients that we say you know, kombucha has. So uh, most of our uh, kombucha continues to brew for months and even years, and so it's able to create all of those you know, healthy acids and enzymes and nutrients that are so beneficial for us in addition to you know, all the, the good bacteria. Well, and I love this story that you're a yoga teacher and started selling it to your students. Yeah, well, started giving it to my students. Giving um, it to your students. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I noticed that people would kind of just like roll up their mat and sheepishly leave the, the yoga studio. And I would see them do that and think, well, you know, they could have done a DVD at home or something. Why did they come here? So I started bringing kombucha to people after class so that they could kind of like sit around and chat with each other, take a little bit of goodness home with them in their bellies. People started wanting to buy it. Stores started calling. Figured I should probably, you know, get legal. I did that and I, you know, just kind of went from there. What is it about kombucha that's so special? I know I see it all over there now. I mean, I even see it on tap some places. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, so it's a, it's a fermented tea. So it's got all the probiotics, the nutrients, the enzymes that come from fermentation. And so it's great for digestion, immune system, mental functioning, joints, hormone balancing, so many things. It's been used in, in, uh, for centuries in Russia. For, um, it, like it's, it's prescribed in hospitals for arthritis and cancer. 
And so it's just mm-hmm. starting to get more popular. Just the, the tiniest little fraction of alcohol in it, though, right? Yeah, well, there's, there's alcohol in anything that's fermented. You know, yogurt, sauerkraut, even our own digestive system when we, make, uh, when we eat uh, fruit. And so, you know, there's a, there's a tiny bit in there, but um, there's alcoholic kombuchas, like GTs with the black label. There's less alcohol kombucha, you know, like less than the detectable amount of 0.2%, uh, and ours falls in that category. Did I hear you say that the genesis of it is tea? Yeah. Um, so kombucha is a specific group of bacteria that have a specific, you know, the foods that they like. There's a lot of other ones like juice kefir, dairy kefir, apple cider vinegar that all have sort of specific um, requirements. Kombucha likes tea and sugar. Mm. The tea has tannins and L-theanine and caffeine. I only say that because I'm assuming fairly nerdy people are listening to this show. (laughs) Also the sucrose that's in white sugar. So we use black tea from India, evaporated cane juice, the kombucha breaks the bonds in some of these molecules for their nutrient source, and then they, they also make you know a bunch of new nutrients as a result. Can you make it with decaf tea? You can make it once or twice. Or herbal. But it's not going to be super happy. So it really needs the caffeine and, and all the other stuff. Mm. You can use different kinds of tea. For example, like white tea has less caffeine than green tea, which has less than black tea. So you kind of have to adjust, you know. Even every culture is different as well. So you kind of have to get to know yours. When you say it'll be less happy, what, what does the caffeine do for it? Well, it gives it energy. So, yeah, so it, it breaks one of the bonds in, in the caffeine, takes the energy from that for what it wants to do for its life, It denatures the caffeine so it no longer affects us in the same way, you know? And so that's why kombucha should be caffeine-free if you make it properly. And so... um, Even if you make it with black tea? Yeah, you can make it with black tea. We, We even have a coffee kombucha that we make. We start off with this really fantastic Himalayan grown coffee, fermented with kombucha, gets rid of the caffeine in that as well, leaves all the nutrients in the coffee. Mm. Let's introduce Christian Krogstad. He's the founder of House Spirits Distillery. He's really a pioneer here. <laughs> oh, thanks. Which, which, and, and his distillery makes everything from gin and vodka to liquor and whiskey. Yep. And you forgot your bottles. I know. Well, <laughs> I, it wasn't in the instructions. So I, 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 I just Ted followed instructions. Ted there. You I know. know. Ted brought the gin. Well, next time. We'll, so we'll tell do us, this again. tell us about your, your path. All How right. did you come, on, come to do this? Um, well, I uh, moved to Portland a little over 25 years ago to become a brewer. I was, uh, had been an avid home brewer in the 80s and uh, moved in, I think in 1991, Portland had something, some wild number, like 14 breweries or something. It was more than anywhere. So this was the natural place to move to become a brewer. I uh, got a job right off with uh, McMemmons. My first job was actually at the Edgefield Brewery starting in, uh, I think, May of of, uh, 91. Worked for McMemmons for a number of years, went to brewing school, started a brewery up in Bellingham. So my brewing path lasted about 12 years. And uh, then I started uh, House Spirits Distillery. Well, almost 12 years ago now. So when we talk about being a pioneer, was was that a new industry in Portland? Um, it, what, it was not. I mean, Clear Creek uh, Distillery just uh, celebrated their tw- uh, 30th anniversary. Steve McCarthy started it 30 years ago. Very much, he was the pioneer. He's the, you know, the, the granddaddy of, of Oregon distilling. There were a couple other distilleries in, in Oregon when we started, but it was, it was definitely a, you know, a, new, a, a new thing. How important would you guys say that it is to be in Portland 
to do the things that you're doing in, in brewing and distilling. For visibility, I think it's fantastic, and it's a very it's a very receptive audience, and and not just in in beer, but like was mentioned earlier, in beer, spirits, wine, coffee, bread kombucha, cider, cheese, you name it. I mean, going back to even, you know, some of the other, you know, Provista starting off bringing all those great cheeses to the to the Northwest and, and Pasta Works, you know, they were some of the real innovators mm-hmm. as well. That's right. So I'm curious, you said visibility. So visibility to whom and of what? To consumers. I mean, there are more that, people. That you're in Portland yeah, is significant. Yeah. I mean, if you're out in the country, it, you're not as visible, you're not as, as front of mind for people, and, and it just it, it is very helpful to have the visibility of the, of the consumer base, and also, you know, from an even more practical standpoint, you know, we have the, the utilities and services here. We have a good, robust sewer system and water, clean, great water. We've got you know, reliable power supply and so forth. So, you know, as much as I want to have a distillery on a farm, it's not practical quite yet. Do you want to respond to that, Ted? Because aren't you out in Hillsboro? Yes. <laughs> um, Where it does have clean like, water, I believe. <laughs> I believe it does. I feel like we're in a Republican debate here going on. Um, you have 30 seconds to respond. Down across the table. No, actually, I was going to look at it from a different angle. Um, where let's, let's take it at one higher level of, of being in the state of Oregon. So in the state of Oregon, as a control state, uh, people have formed their opinions and, and what have you, and, and so be it. But coming from someone that owns a business, that someone that got a distillery started, you know, you go to the OLCC website and they have the distillery in a box. I pay $100 for a fee uh, for my license to do what I do in this state. The cities themselves actually want us to be and be in their communities uh, and work with us, some better than others, So, but I won't go down that path. But I think as a state, Oregon is probably one of the best states to have this business. Um, we're distributed in several states, and I've, I've talked to other people in other places. We have it. Uh, we have a lot of collaboration with crafting laws about what we can do as distilleries in this state, and we've had them where other states are just starting to catch up. Uh, buddies back in North Carolina they just got the ability to sell you a bottle of booze in their distillery. And it's one bottle, I believe, every 30 days. That, that's it. That's mm. all they can sell. So we, we've got a lot of privileges here in the state. Um, you know, Portland aside, I think it's a good place to be and start this business. Cool. Jim, Jim here. I saw that you shaking your head as well. Oh, yeah. I'm just really excited about the, the water. And I feel like the... <laughs> I mean, we get um, runoff from Mount Hood, which is a... a uh, volcanic glacier. I mean, how do you get any better than that? I think that's one of the big reasons there's a lot of, uh, you know, distilleries and breweries here in Portland, right? Right. Yeah. Deb, maker at Sage and Sea, a question for you that came over the talk board. What are some cocktails that you can make with sipping vinegar? Oh, it's so wonderful. You get a lot of recipes. You see a lot of recipes from bartenders, and I love Portland's bartenders. They're incredibly creative. But you see these recipes, and there's 17 ingredients, and half of them you've never heard of and no idea what you'd do with it if you ever got it again. Shrub makes it so simple. You start with a good whiskey, two ounces of whiskey, and a spoonful of uh, mint to make a julep, a spoonful of grapefruit or orange shrub to make a whiskey sour, 
with a little bit of tarragon uh, syrup if you want. You can use our cherry ginger and then a little lemon or orange zest, the exact same cocktail. With uh, gin, I really love our strawberry shrub, something on the sweeter side that blends beautifully with a big junipery gin. And then fill it up with, uh, fill the glass the rest of the way up with cider. And it's just super simple and you bring all of these amazing complex flavors to the cocktail without having to have ingredients you'll never use again. Really sounds good. And I think people are really getting into that, too, not just having a glass of wine or a shot of whiskey or gin, but, you know, mixing these, uh, that's a thing now, too, right? We've participated, this is Erica from Stone Barn, in a lot of paired uh, dinner events, so they'll develop a cocktail around a certain course that complements it from appetizer to soup to main course to dessert. So like five cocktail pairings throughout a meal, and those have been really, really well received. Nightlight Lounge has done one. Yeah, they've, they've been a good venue for us to present spirits as more integrated into the eating scene. And I just wonder what that says about us. I mean, we kind of, are we just self-absorbed, or do we just have to do something <laughs> new and different all the time? Which is it? Depends who you ask, people from inside or outside. Well, I think that that takes us back to what makes Portland such an excellent place to do this is that we are an incredible food culture and we have been for years, even before now. I mean, Wildwood started how many years ago? Mm-hmm. You know, we've always been very, very local sourced, very and, and very food oriented before that was a thing around the country. Mm-hmm. So I think that being in Portland really does make that happen. Plus, we have the valley with this incredible bounty of food and uh, fruit and vegetables to use, why would we not take advantage of that? So I'm also curious to know about this whole idea of it being cyclical, though. I mean, I remember my parents having these kinds of drinks, right? So, and then then we got into the wine and beer world, and now we're going into the mixed, I feel as though it's cyclical that, that we're going back to mixed drinks and interesting drinks that are innovative. And plus, isn't Portland just a very innovative place? Sorry, they can't hear you nodding on the radio. (laughs) (laughs) We see a lot of that in uh, tiki culture being huge in Portland and and spreading. You know, we are back to that cocktail, um, having a cocktail hour, having cocktail parties and playing with these different things. And I think that that helps us all as spirits, too. I mean, I prefer my bourbon neat, too, but it's always nice to be able to mix something. So what we're going to mix up right now is the beer guys and the cider guys and the distillers and the sipping vinegar ladies, and we're going to have a toast. And uh, I believe that Christian Krogstad, founder of House Spirits Distillery, has been nominated to offer the toast. Let me just run down who all is here while you're formulating your toast, okay, Christian? I'm sure you have it on the tip of your tongue. I can see that in your face. Matt Bergfield, head brewer at Edgefield. Uh, Brian Yeager, craft beverage writer, author of Red, White, and Brew, and also another book called Oregon Breweries. Was that the one in 2014? Yes, it was. The newest one. Really great. Steve Panos, director of operations at Reverend Nat's Hard Cider. Abram Goldman Armstrong, cider maker and owner of Cider Riot. And Erica Deegans, co-founder of Stone Barn Brandyworks, along with Ted Pappas, founder and owner of Big Bottom Distilling. Deb Tabor, maker at Sage NC Farms. Christian Krogstad, founder of House Spirits Distillery, and Jean-Pierre Parent, founder of Soma Evolutionary Refreshment and Kombucha Speakeasy. Thank you so much for being here. And Christian. I want 
wanted to offer a, a three-part toast to round out the show here. Um, first part, a toast to our, our hosts and the, the station for bringing this uh, the show to us and, and for uh, raising awareness of uh, the Portland uh, beverage scene. I would also like to toast to the... Uh, to all of the makers, not just the makers here in the room, but throughout the city who have worked diligently throughout the year to bring these uh, great products to market and to the, the uh, most importantly, I'd like to toast all of the uh, great customers, all the great supporters we have out there around the city, around the state who are allowing us to, um, to follow our passion. So cheers to all of you. Cheers. Cheers. A prosperous 2016. The clink of plastic. The clink of plastic, exactly. (laughs) Very nice. Thank you so much to all of our guests Mm, and to our listeners. Thank you all for coming. I've just really enjoyed meeting all of you. Thanks for being here. Thanks for joining us today for Biz 503 on PRP. 